I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. Before television, before film, and even before radio, Americans flocked to theaters for live entertainment. In thousands of towns, including my own hometown, the theater is where traveling troops of actors and singers and dancers came to take others away from their everyday lives. Wendy Wassett Barrett is an artist, historian, and business owner who travels the country restoring the artifacts of that age, backdrops, paintings, props, and even machinery that helped transport audiences to other times and places. Given the amount of historical material that's still out there and needing to be saved, her job is literally a race against time. It's live visual spectacle, whether it was for the Ringling Brothers Grand Circus Spectacle or Fred Thompson on Coney Island or a touring show of Madame Majeska or the Bostonians and their opera tours, that same visual aesthetic encompassed American life, created by scenic artists, whether it was for a dry goods store sign or some kind of window display or an amusement for 1893, the same creators were producing a visual aesthetic. We'll get to your work in a minute, but so we know what went into making you an artist and historian, let's start with you telling us about your hometown. Well, I grew up in Crystal, Minnesota, which is a northwestern suburb of Minneapolis, very close to where my parents grew up. My father grew up in North Minneapolis and my mother in the local farming community to the west. So I had a phenomenal childhood. I'm an only child, and it was just a very quiet, middle-income suburb. Nothing remarkable, fantastic mm-hmm. schools, great theater and arts programs. And I really couldn't have asked for a better childhood. And introduce us to your parents. Who were they and what did they do for a living? My father was a high lift operator for Gold Bond Returns. And that's where he worked for 19 and a half years. And at 19 and a half years, Kurt Carlson shut down the company so he wouldn't have to pay any retirement. So that's when my dad stopped working and my mom went back to work. She had started in the early 1950s as a school teacher excelling in math and history. She is absolutely brilliant and as brilliant as well as my dad works with his hands. So she went back to teaching after having had a career before me and worked at Northeast Middle School in Minneapolis, teaching both math and history. What impact did your mom taking up the work mantle and becoming the primary income earner have on you growing up? Well, she was at home for my first 13 years. So I had the perfect at-home mom. And then I had pretty much the perfect at-home dad. They were always equal. There was never a greater than or lesser than job. 
I grew up with incredibly strong female role models, regardless of what they were doing, and friends of the family. And I watched my parents travel together and play music together. But it was also because my mother was teaching inner city and visiting the low-income housing or kids that didn't have telephones or any support network. I saw how she was able to nurture others. It was a very progressive home. And I guess what I grew up with was, I may have a remarkable career or amazing talents, but there are easily 10,000 people that could replace me. They just haven't had my same opportunities. And I have really taken that to heart throughout whatever I was doing. Along with any job you do, you do incredibly well because your name's attached to it, even if it's cleaning toilets. <laughs> so uh, <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's that. So, so, I mean, that's why I had amazing role models. And it's not that our extended family or immediate family didn't have problems, but it was always the idea of we've managed to survive this. And so that set me up for figuring out how to survive any obstacle that was thrown my way. And I like to think I do that with some amount of grace, but it also helps having that extended network still. In addition to resilience, what did your parents do to nurture your creativity? Well, when I was little and my mom was at home, my mom would put all of the baking ingredients in front of me to make a cake or cookies, kind of the correct amounts, but would let me make all the measurements and and bake it by myself, not putting in the oven, of course. Uh, and the whole idea was it might not turn out fantastic, but at least I was learning how to, the ingredients that went into a cake. And I say this, my mother really doesn't like cooking that much. It's not her forte. She was always given the option of play music or cook and clean at home. So she was really good at music. So I was encouraged to draw, finger paint, do everything. And because I was the only one, it meant that I had an awful lot of time with both parents. And whatever I decided to do, so I was able to take ballet and I was on point and dancing was my passion for quite a while. Twirling baton, all of that stuff they made possible so that I could figure out what I wanted to do. And I didn't take formal art lessons until college, really. I had a couple in high school but my dad's hobby was painting and drawing and stonework. So there was never anything that I was told I couldn't do. And my mother and father both came from that aspect of, even though my mom was a woman in the 1940s and going to school and getting ready to enter college, she worked alongside my grandfather building houses in Robbinsdale. We both came from whatever you put your mind to, you can do. When you were graduating from high school, what were your goals? I managed to go to the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities by default. Um, I just barely made all of the deadlines, and it, it was the best thing that, that could have happened. My plan was I would work as a waitress, manage to make just enough money for each quarter, because my folks simply couldn't help out. They, they could help me with a place to live, meaning in their home but they couldn't help out with tuition. So by waiting on tables at a Chinese restaurant, I was able to, and being extremely frugal, I saved enough money each term to be able to pay for books and tuition. And the plan was I would have a theater arts degree because I really, really wanted to dance and direct and act, 
but I knew that I wasn't stunningly wonderful at any one of those things. <laughs> so I was going to back it up with an English degree and likely teach as, as a drama teacher, because again, teaching was strong in the family. And I, I, I plugged along. So I was living at home, taking the bus downtown to the University of Minnesota, working at every single moment that I could possibly afford and went to school that way for probably the first year and a half before I moved out. And within a very short period of time, I realized that I could paint extremely well as a scenic artist and just kind of morphed into that. How did you come to find out you had some talent in that area and wanted to pursue it? Thankfully, as an actor-slash-director wannabe dancer, we had to take a variety of different classes. And it was in an introduction to technical theater and scenic design that I realized I had a way greater passion for stage work than I had for being on stage. And so that's how I morphed very quickly into backstage versus onstage. And I mean, my transition to scenic art is really credited to, to one professor, and it's Professor Emeritus uh, Lance Brockman. He was in charge of scene design and scenic art when I went through, and he was the one who singled me out and said, you should really think about taking my scenic art class. And I, I took the class where we were trained in the traditional method with dry pigment, which is pure color. It's like a distemper painting system and diluted hide glue. And we painted vertically like all of the historic scenic artists did. And by that summer, I was working for Sesame Street Live, painting scenery and never went back to waiting again. And I put myself through college by scene painting by the time I was 18, transitioning 19. So you really made the transition early from school to professional with Sesame Street Live. Who else did you work for during that time? Um, mixed Blood Theater. I did both scenic design um, and painting for them on several shows. A couple of independent films and films that came through town. Anything that would pay. Special stuff for the local PBS station, KTCA, and murals. I mean, I also transitioned from theater and a little bit of film work to residential murals because it paid so much better. But opera, I worked for um, various uh, opera programs when the music program at the University of Minnesota was at Scott Hall. I met my husband while painting a show that he was lead role in, Albert Herring. And I just painted everything. I had a, a gig or so for the Renaissance Festival painting small little outdoor things. I, I just became enamored with scenic art and stage illusion, especially the traditional method. And I had such amazing encouragement and became, you know, teaching assistant as I morphed into a MA PhD program that I I never looked back. I never regretted not acting or directing. I missed the dancing tremendously because I found such joy out of dancing. But then it just became more social dancing than stage dancing. But I, but that part I did miss and still miss to this day. So I kind of dance while I paint, or at least in sure. my, probably, probably not that anyone would ever recognize, but it's, it's more of a, I've been able to channel that. So that's how that morph happened. And it, it happened early on. 
So with all that going on, how did you add researching and preserving history of scenic art into the mix? The one thing, again, through Lance Brockman that I had the opportunity to, which, which greatly shaped where I am now, is I had three things happen simultaneously. One is I was working professionally as a scenic, a scenic artist, so that was supporting me. But as an undergraduate research opportunities program grant, I processed two historic scenic art collections and design, and those were scene designs that ranged from the 1890s to about the 1960s and were primarily Masonic in nature for the stage rituals by Scottish Rite Freemasons. And while that's going on, I not only just cataloged and cleaned and sorted, but I replicated the small designs in small scale. Part of the deal was that students would be able to use this as a resource tool so they could sit alongside this small little painting, which is the design, and replicate it to learn technique and while doing that, because then I morphed into an MA and PhD, not really quite understanding what that would entail at the time, I was given us a project, independent study project, to create an index for the diary and scrapbook of a scenic artist named Thomas Gibbs Moses, who worked from 1873 to 1934. So I went through this massive scope of history creating an index and falling in love with both what he did, how he wrote, and who this individual was. And at 19, 20 years old, I, I promised myself, boy, at some point I am going to go through every single line in that diary and really figure out what he was working on, because I think this is a pretty big deal. How did it come about that you took what you do and made it a business? It was my passion and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And it was also with the amazing support of my husband and my parents. They've, they've financially helped over the years whenever we've had a dip. My husband, well, just like me, we took on jobs that, that had to pay, but I was fortunate and it never departed from my field. So without the network of support from both friends and family, I, I couldn't have done it, not in a million years. Um, I couldn't have done it without the, the support of colleagues and especially Lance Brockman who, who helped secure. I mean, I was referred to so many jobs. I never, I hardly ever showed a portfolio. It's a field that is very much word of mouth. I mean, I worked hard at it. That's, you, you can't not, but it was such a passion that it never really felt like work. There were times it certainly did feel like hard labor. <laughs> you know, I'd be under some kind of sculpture painting black paint, so it's certainly not all glamorous, but it was a network of support. And so let's do a rundown of what your business entails. Who are your customers and what do you do for them? I specialize in not only repairing and restoring historic scenery, so that would be backdrops and framed pieces for the stage, frequently found in historic venues, but also replicating that style. 
and being able to research and figure what was initially delivered to that opera house, whether it's in 1904 or 1924, and being able to re-deliver that visual aesthetic, but also passing along those techniques to the next generation. So I teach also and offer classes. My main clientele up until recently has remained the Scottish Rite Freemasons because they are probably the stewards of the largest scenery collection in the world. It's not just one entity. Each valley owns a different collection, but they were so large and they're all like little time capsules where this one was delivered in 1912, the, the Santa Fe Scottish Rite. That's when that collection was delivered by a Chicago-based firm. The same thing can be said for when Wichita's scenery was delivered in Kansas in 1908 or the St. Paul Scottish Rite Theater in 1910. They're such large collections. And when opera houses and, and civic auditoriums or small theaters or cinemas were ordering small collections of stock scenery, the Masons were ordering five times that size because they had the funding to do it. But it's live visual spectacle, whether it was for the Ringling Brothers Grand Circus Spectacle or Fred Thompson on Coney Island or a touring show of Madame Majeska or the Bostonians and their opera tours. That same visual aesthetic encompassed American life. So whether you were in the South or the North, the East or the West, you were really surrounded by the same painting, in a sense, created by scenic artists, whether it was for a dry goods store sign or some kind of window display or an amusement for 1893, the same creators were producing a visual aesthetic. As these collections are getting older, they start to deteriorate and they need help. So my company not only looks at the scenery, either repairing, replicating, or completely re-envisioning a new system, the scenery is integral to how it was lit. So we look at lighting systems, and then we also look at stage machinery. That's pretty much everything behind the curtain line <laughs> is what Historic Stage Services specializes in. As you know, I discovered you and your work through an article in the New York Times about a discovery of artifacts you made in Leadville, Colorado. How did that come about? Well, I was the volume editor for the Santa Fe Scottish Rite Temple, Freemasonry, Architecture, and Theater, which was a book published in 2018 by the Museum of New Mexico Press. And we were getting ready to have a book signing party and release at the Santa Fe Scottish Rite Temple. That's a 1912 theater collection and building. And my husband and son were going to drive with me to the event. And we decided to take a long trip and see how many historic theaters we could stop at. We stopped at historic theaters in Omaha and Hastings, Nebraska and Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I was going to stop by Denver for the Scottish Rite there and, and head back into the mountains to the Wheeler House in Aspen, Colorado. But the Wheeler didn't pan out. So I, I looked at other theaters and a couple of colleagues recommended the Tabor Opera House in Leadville. And I decided to spend my 49th birthday in Leadville. So on the 18th, we get into Leadville. I have my little appointment. 
the next day on my birthday, we're going to go hiking up to the Continental Divide and around Turquoise Lake. And I'm so excited. And I've heard rumors that there's scenery in the attic. And I had asked the executive director, who was Marianne Graham Best, if it would be okay for me to go and just kind of poke around in the attic and, and see if there's anything worthwhile. And I pretty much got sure, but you're on your own. And I climbed up to the top of the steps by myself, complete with my little N95 that we had picked up at the, the hardware store and my gloves and my dirty clothes because I knew I would be covered in filth. And I started to slowly go through. And I mean, I was documenting really carefully what each layer was entailing. And so as I kept getting down, it became like, oh, I think this is the original scenery. I, I don't think it's just 19th century scenery before the building was renovated in 1901. All of the original scenery that was still on site in 1901 was just kind of tucked up in the attic. So as I'm going through and getting to the back wall, because there really is only so much I can lift. I'm you know, five foot one and a half um, and trying to pick up stuff and, and move it over. And at one point, two helpers are sent up because, you know, I'm bubbly and excited and, you know, yabbering on about, hey, look at all this amazing stuff. And so now I have two young men who are helping me shift it. And we were able to get back to some of the big pieces, which were shutters and shutters are 10 feet by 16 feet and two of them would slide together in grooves and that's what formed backdrops when you couldn't raise a backdrop up and out of sight and so with looking at the quality of it I was astounded and excited and took a ton of pictures and tried to convey how super important this all was that's what I found and it was really one of the favorite moments that I have encountered in my life because I'm just up in this dingy attic by myself knowing that a select few colleagues had seen this over the years and that probably even fewer understood the significance of what this meant from North America because it's just not comparable to anything else in North America in regard to scope of scenic art, stage machinery, composition, artistic provenance. And, and I had a sense of what I was seeing. But then I wanted to do the research to make sure that I wasn't assigning more credit or importance than what was there. And with each new research curve, it became like, okay, it's not only important, it's super important. So that's why it was, it was just delightful. What do you see as the future of that collection in Leadville? Well, I don't know the future of the collection. And actually, it causes a little bit of frustration and stress on Maya. So the Tabor Opera House is typical of most historic theaters across the United States, meaning that the ones in charge that create a board of directors really don't have a firm grasp on backstage activities. It becomes more of a amazing historic theater that's important in their community, but that it's just a, it's just a theater. And when I came back with a 1300 page report 
that listed a historical analysis and the artistic provenance and each piece and how it was connected and why it was important. The lack of people on the board reading it surprised me. And there still is doubt as far as what they're going to do with it. For some, the scenery is incredibly important. For others, the scenery is a nuisance. I can only convey information and hope that this group of people will see the value of it. I hope that it's preserved and restored, but I can't say for certain that it's going to be saved. It's currently leaning against a back wall and that back wall is leaking. I don't know how long it's going to last or survive. And there's there's more scenery that's just tucked away in the building. It's like little bunny rabbits just completely reproducing every time you turn around, whether it was shoved in a wall or above the rafters of the attic, there was more scenery. And that's that's why it's so exciting. But it also is so terrifying because it just could all disappear. And as more theaters are renovated, more artifacts are coming into play. And it's it's we all help each other when we recognize this is important because it gives justification to all the other renovations and scenery. Let's talk about the future for the few minutes that we have left. What are your artistic and or business ambitions for the next few years? I'm going to keep painting, not for anyone else other than myself. I work in all the different media and have have taught art classes for quite a long time. From a business standpoint, it's continuing to focus one project at a time, hopefully being that little bit of incentive that will cause more historic scenery collections to come to life and also training in the next generation because it simply can't just be me or a handful of group across, <laughs> across the globe. There have to be more people and there has to be a greater understanding. And while I'm doing my little artistic happiness and, and dealing with various projects, I really wanna be able to finish my book on Sossman and Landis. And that's this Thomas Gibbs Moses that I was talking about. He was their first employee and last president of the company. My folks made a deal with me yesterday and my mom said, <laughs> We want you to write for three hours a day, no matter what you do. <laughs> like nothing like, well, gee, mom, that's not any pressure. Sure, I can do that. But but no, that actually is my goal because until their story is told, I think there is an underappreciation of what that generation of theater folk did for the industry. And they're often swept aside. I mean, we celebrate, at least in the theater, it, well, I think in any industry. We celebrate the legacy of a precious few while often ignoring the contributions of all their predecessors. It's those unknown people that really didn't get acknowledged during their career, but they really shouldn't be forgotten either because of their contribution. I want to thank Wendy Wassett Barrett for joining us. And I hope you enjoyed listening. Our podcast is produced by Eclectic River Daydream. You've heard from us, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us feedback on our website at www.storypod.us 
or on Facebook at American Storyteller. Until the next time you hear from me, I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller.